With the rise of renewable energies, electric vehicles and recycling, we've started to change the way that we make, do and live. But a group of experts are worried that all the potential gains we can make to tackle climate change will mean nothing if we don't look at one very pressing but hard to address issue. Us, and more specifically, how many of us there are. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, the National's Foreign Editor. And this week, we're asking how many children is too many when it comes to climate change. Since you started listening to this podcast, around 164 children have been born. There are more than 7.7 billion of us on the planet. It took until 1800 for the world's population to hit 1 billion. Now we're adding 1 billion more every 12 to 15 years. This, scientists say, is simply unsustainable. But what can we do about an exploding population? With all the dire headlines around climate change, it's easy to get disillusioned and anxious. That's one reason that Emma Lim, an 18-year-old activist and creator of the No Future, No Children pledge, has vowed, along with 5,000 others, not to have children. That's until governments around the world take substantive action on climate change. For my generation, you know, climate change isn't a matter of opinion. It's not something you believe in or you don't believe in. It's objective fact. For my whole life, I've been aware that, you know, we were heading towards the brink that our way of living was unsustainable but it really felt like it was my fault or like it was society's fault and that there was nothing really we could do but as I got older I realized that that wasn't true you know climate change isn't the fault of the people at whole it's the fault of a very select few corporations and the governments that are letting them get away with it and the Canadian government is one of those governments and so I created this pledge because because I know it has to be done, and our government isn't doing it. And so when I think of the future, I don't feel hope, or I don't feel happy. I feel scared. I feel hopeless. I feel terrified. You know, the collapse of ecosystems, of food and water scarcity is not where I would want to raise a child. And so until the government takes steps, you know, to start to protect its citizens, um, I don't want to bring a child into the world. In September, teenage activist Greta Thunberg took on the United Nations General Assembly and berated world leaders for causing most of the problems but offering few solutions. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. For Emma, this was a powerful moment. I cried. Because the day before she had made that speech, the Secretary General of the United Nations had addressed um, the youth who were invited to the first day. And he told us that he'd been pushing for climate action for years but they'd only just started to make leeway because of us, because, you know, youth all over the world are organizing, are organizing protests and strikes and walking out of school and doing things that youth shouldn't have to be doing. And he told us, keep going. This is the only way that we'll win. And, you know, it was scary to hear, but, you know, a few hours later when it had sunk in, I got furious. I felt that same anger because, you know, there's one of the most powerful adults in the world telling us that, you know, the children were the only hope for the future, that we were the ones who had to solve this problem. And so she said, how dare you? 
um, how dare you put this burden on us? And I, I really identified with that. Emma's parents were not initially supportive of her pledge idea. I told my dad this is a project I was working on and we were in the car and he said, that's a stupid idea. Don't do that. That's ridiculous. And so that delayed the launch for quite a few months because I, I take my parents' opinions very, very seriously. Um, but I felt really strongly about it. And so I launched it anyways. When you talk to your parents about feeling scared because of the climate crisis, that's different than telling your parents you're scared of the climate crisis and you won't have children because that's real to some people in the way that the effects of the climate crisis aren't. It's really hard to ignore. But, she says, her pledge isn't about population control. Rather, it's an expression of her fear about the future and an appeal to governments to take action. It's true that having a child, of course, increases your carbon footprint, but the effects of the climate crisis are going to hit before the effects of any kind of population control could help to counter that. It's meant to be an expression of fear, so I think that the right kind of people are expressing they're afraid. I mean, anybody who's afraid of the climate crisis is the right kind of person. You know, some people have emailed me, a lot of people have emailed me, and they've said, like, but if you don't have children, then who will fix the climate crisis? Like, what if your children, you know, are the ones who will come up with the solution because of, you know, your belief in science and, and your, I don't know, the value you place on the environment? And I think that's ridiculous, to be honest. I think it's it's a kind of a terrible thing because we have the solutions to the climate crisis right now. It's not a burden um, that my generation should shoulder, and it certainly isn't a burden that the next generation should shoulder. But population control is a major issue that experts are saying needs to be discussed when it comes to tackling climate change. Here's Corey Bradshaw, a fellow in global ecology at the Flinders University in Australia. He specialises in developing models that predict environmental outcomes and has spent years looking at global populations. So how pressing an issue is the number of people on the planet? We are part of biodiversity. Human, human beings are homo sapiens. We are an animal species. We're particularly clever uh, at um, exploiting um, the remaining species to our advantage. And we've done that since time immemorial. We've hunted, we've grown plants, we've created large-scale agriculture. We've allowed our societies to provide caloric value so that we could do things other than just you know, hunt for food and, and, or grow it. But that comes at a huge cost. So around the world, since the 50s at least, 80% of deforestation has occurred because of agricultural expansion, basically to feed the growing uh, global human population. Now that means all the species that live in these forests, including the trees themselves, uh, become endangered and then they become extinct. Now, so a lot of people think, well, why should that concern me? You know, most of these species I'd never see. Um, I don't like going in the forest. It's dirty. It's smelly. It's full of things that will bite me. Uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> we absolutely depend on biodiversity for our own lives. I mean, all of the oxygen we breathe is due to algae mainly in the oceans that pr process carbon dioxide and, and spit out oxygen. Uh, all of our water, all of our fresh water that falls on the landscape that is then is filtered through um, many thousands of different types of plants and wetlands, that, f that, f that wetland provides 
fresh water to um, billions of people the world over. Think about our food supply. One in every six mouthfuls of our food comes from one species. That is the honeybee. <laughs> That's particularly a, a vulnerable state to be in because uh, many listeners might know that honeybees are declining in many parts of the world. If our food and our air and our water all are due to other species, yet we're doing our best, really, to try to destroy that. One of Corey's studies looked at numerous catastrophic events to see if huge shocks would reduce the population significantly by 2100. We wanted to ask the question, how quickly could uh, certain events alter the trajectory of the global population? And this is something that, as I said, human demographers probably wouldn't do. So we considered some extreme scenarios, and, and those extreme scenarios actually caused us a lot of flack <laughs> online. But the, the upshot was that uh, we, we, no matter what we did, including things like uh, third world wars and massive global scale pandemics and even nuclear war, where billions of people were dying within a very short period of time, say over you know, four or five years, we really found it very difficult to bring the population, the global population that is, down to, uh, to much below five, five billion people by the end of the century. Robin Maynard, director of the British-based campaign charity Population Matters, says that population reduction can still make a difference. The, the, the sort of key equation around impact on the planet are the population factor, the affluence cons- consumption, and technology. And if you take any one of those out, it makes harder, you know, there's less wriggle room for either reducing people's consumption rates and making them consume, you know, better, more sustainably, uh, not wanting so much stuff, or for good technologies such as renewables or sequestration or whatever it is to actually have an impact. I think the most important thing around climate change is that it has been shown by a wonderful study called Project Drawdown that if you uh, enable young people, particularly young women, girls, to have access to education and thereby to make choices about their own fertility and how many children they have and when, so the spacing of those children, they will choose to have fewer children later. They will be more entrepreneurial in their communities and in their countries. They will fulfill their potential. And as a result, there will be far less um, large families, far fewer people overall, and they will consume less, and they will then reduce the impact on, on our climate. And that, that was interesting from Project Drawdown, that when they looked at that, those factors and they, they brought together enabling girls access to education and family planning, they found it was the number one uh, solution to climate change. And at the same time, it was a no-regret solution because it enabled those girls to live better, more fulfilled lives, achieving their potential. This point is really important. If you map the world's highest producers of CO2 against the countries with the fastest growing populations, it becomes clear that those making the biggest impact on the environment are the ones having the least children. Indeed, many developed Western states actually have a declining population, while underdeveloped nations often have large average family sizes. So then, we're talking about reducing the global population by targeting efforts at those making so far the least contribution to the problem of climate change. Many governments in developing nations, especially smaller ones, encourage families to have children, tying their economic future to a larger workforce. For those countries, discussing reducing the population is tantamount to telling them not to develop. 
But that's not universal. The most famous example of a government-led population management strategy is probably China's one-child policy between the 1980s and 2016. Corey looked at this when he was putting together their scenarios about events that could reduce the size of the global population by 2100. Well, we, we, we looked at China in particular because, of course, that's probably one of the most, dare I say, infamous examples of mass um, government control of, of human fertility. Interestingly, China is probably going to peak in its population growth over the next 10 years or so and then start to decline slowly. So China reduced its population faster than it would have otherwise done simply from developing and becoming wealthier. So now they achieved that just much more quickly because they imposed the, the one-child limit. As an example of what could be done, albeit to an extreme and probably politically unacceptable, in most countries, and, and I, I absolutely agree with that myself, we also looked at what would happen if, for example, globally, there was a move towards a, a, a one-child policy, if you will. Now, we didn't impose it overnight. We said, okay, if we moved as a, as, as a globe towards, uh, on average, one child per, per woman by 2100, what would the effect be? And it turns out that Essentially, it would, it would mean that there would be the same number of people on the planet in 2100 as there are today. You would probably prevent the, uh, the births of, of some 5 billion people. So it's not an insubstantial number of people. It just means that you're not going to reduce the population very quickly. So what do we need to do to reduce the population that isn't an enforced government directive? In any population, um, Obviously, direct deaths are going to bring down populations the quickest, uh, but that's certainly not an option from the perspective of uh, attempting to bring populations down to more sustainable numbers because the only lever we can really pull is, is family planning. That, um, that can vary quite substantially. For example, in, in my country, Australia, the, the average fertility is below two, whereas if you look at places like Nigeria, they're sort of tracking at a, at a, at a maximum rate of about five to six uh, babies per woman on average, which is kind of a, sort of a maximum level. So they're looking to, to increase their population between you know, five to seven times by the end of the century. Per capita income increases, that fertility rates tend to decline. Now, this, this happened throughout Latin America during its main development phases it also happened in much of uh, Southeast Asia. But Africa's kind of bucking the trend. Despite increasing wealth uh, and despite increasing development, a lot of countries in Africa have stagnated in, t in, in terms of their fertility reductions. So fertility remains stubbornly high in many parts of Africa, which means that as a continent, they're, they're likely to, to go from sort of half a billion people today to pretty much close to three billion by the end of the century. Robin says that giving women more choice is better than actively trying to manage the size of the population. Population matters doesn't support any form of coercion or in, you know, enforced measures or you know, we don't talk in any way about control. It's about enabling choice and empowering particularly women to make the choices they want. So we know, and I was at the latest uh, UN um, Population and Development Conference out in Nairobi, and we know from the UN uh, figures that 232 million women across the world do not have access to the safe 
uh, family planning that they wish. And that may be uh, because there isn't actual direct access, but it's more likely there may be cultural reasons, it may be it's a patriarchal society, but simply they haven't got the choice that they want. And meeting that choice would um, not only enable those women to lead the lives they want to lead and make the choices they want, but it would reduce an enormous amount of impact upon the planet because we know that 44% of pregnancies are unplanned globally and that means that 99 million pregnancies go to full term and births occur which were not uh, directly wanted. So we should ideally have a world where every child is wanted and every woman has a choice over when and how many um, children she has. Robin points to Bangladesh as a country that has successfully achieved population reduction in a sustainable way. But Bangladesh is a very interesting example because it is a it's a poor country and it's it's a sort of it's facing the perfect storm of of climate change, population growth, um, historically hostile neighbours, and you know upstream um, uh, challenges in terms of the meltwaters from the Himalayas, you know, rushing down the great rivers, rushing down through into Bangladesh, and then the delta, which is low lying, which you know a huge number of people live on and rely upon. And that's being eroded away by rising sea levels. And we will see, for you know, the, the tigers, the famous tigers of the Sundarban forests will be gone. There's nowhere for them to go to and the Sundarbans will be eroded. So huge, huge problems facing Bangladesh. But confronted by that, they made a, a decision and, and they had the understanding that they needed to address their burgeoning uh, high fertility rate and, and population growth. So that's where they... They worked out and they worked at the community level rather than imposing it. And they worked with uh, community leaders and, and religious leaders and, and, you know, different ethnic groups at the grassroots to introduce a program of empowering education amongst um, young people and particularly girls. But it took them 30 years to achieve that change. So that's where I get anxious because we haven't got 30 years. But if only we know at the moment... If, if we just increased the overseas aid from all the sort of developed world and said, right, just double it, you know, just, just give an extra percentage of your aid to family planning programs and, and enabling girls to be educated uh, and to make those choices, we could have a huge difference. You know, the potential is there to make a, a sort of seismic change. In 1970, Bangladeshi women were having on average 6.9 children, Today, it's just 2.1. Across numerous developing nations, there are government and NGO programmes around family planning, educating women and opening up opportunities. This is all aimed at reducing large family sizes. But Robin says that campaigners in developed nations are reluctant to have the same conversations when it comes to climate change. There's a real sort of, um, what's the word, disconnect between organisations in the global north and those in the global south. The global north feel they can't possibly talk about it. And yes, we have to talk about our consumption in the global north. But of course, the interesting thing is if you have an extra child, every additional child in a rich country like the US, the UK, Europe, or the Arab Emirates, or Qatar, or wherever, they will actually have a really dis- a huge impact in terms of their climate change um, uh, contribution. So choosing to have a smaller family in the UK, Europe or the US is the, by far, the most effective eco-action you can take. So both Robin and Corey agree that the population of the planet is just too high. 
But they have a slightly different view of the next point. Is it too late to reverse the impact of an ever-increasing number of people? If you simply look at the science and the evidence, you think, my goodness, what have I done? What have I done as a father bringing you know, two young girls into the world? But as a, as a father and as a human being, I have great optimism. I have to. I have to hold on to that. And I see the changes that can and are being made in places. There are some... You know, there are some amazing things I've seen over my 30 years as an environmentalist, where initially I was just, you know, part of a group we were regarded as a bunch of hopeless hippies and sort of laughed at. But now nobody would think twice about not recycling in, in the UK and in the developed world. We're also seeing industry beginning to sort of um, catch up. And I, I think it's fairly amazing to hear the car industry saying, All right, we're going to go beyond petrol and diesel. We're already hybrid. We're getting to electric. And yes, that electricity has to be generated. But they're also moving on to hydrogen as well. It's a really close run race. But I think we can just about do it. I, I have to have that hope. But the, the danger, the greatest danger, and we're facing this in my country at the moment, is the short term nature of politics. So politicians only look to, in our country, a sort of five year term at most, and there is not the long-term sustainable planning. So the frustration is all this evidence has been there for the past 30 years, and politicians and policymakers have failed to act on it, partly because they can't believe it, but partly because they're only interested in the next five years, the short-termism. So we need much greater long-term planning. And I think that's where you see discussion now of having a sort of global authority in terms of ecosystems and the environment. You know, we're actually, we can't leave it to national governments. We are going to have to have some form of much more powerful and effective uh, global mechanism uh, beyond the UN if we are going to get our planet in balance in time. But we're in a situation now that has driven me to to a pretty pessimistic point of view, and, and that's shared by many of my colleagues uh, around the world. So, um, you know, is my daughter's future, I do have a daughter, she's 12 years old, is my daughter's future going to be worse than the way I grew up? Uh, most likely, in, in my opinion. I think runaway climate change alone is one of the scariest things that is facing us today. So yes, I'm a bit of a pessimist. That said, what gets me out of bed in the morning and allows me to continue to do my job is that every little way that we can improve our behavior and become more sustainable as a global population, the 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 less likely hor horrific catastrophes are going to affect um, not only me but, but but my offspring. So that that's really what drives me these days. This was Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes Young. Thanks this week to Emma Lim, Corey Bradshaw, and Robin Maynard. To hear every episode of Beyond the Headlines as it comes out hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you can leave us a review, it really helps. We were produced this week by Ayesh Khan and Taylor Heyman with assistance from Hannah Finity.